Hello, and welcome to New Books in Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa, and I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books in a broad range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Eric Steinhardt, Professor of Philosophy at William Patterson University. His new book, Your Digital Afterlives, Computational Theories of Life After Death, is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. What is life after death? Many people may seek an answer to the question by looking to a traditional religion, such as Christianity or Buddhism, and offering its view of an afterlife. In Your Digital Afterlives, Steinhardt presents and defends the core tenets of digitalism, a computational theology that comprehensively transposes and updates long-standing philosophical and theological concepts, principles, and arguments about the self, the universe, and the nature of divinity into the conceptual framework of computer science. The result is a new way of thinking about the nature of life and the nature of death, and therefore about the question of life after death. In Steinhardt's version of of digitalism, everything is a computation. There is no such thing as judgment in the Christian sense. Your soul is simply a program that will rerun on a progression of superior computers. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Eric Steinhardt. Are you there? I am here. Uh, Welcome to New Books and Philosophy. Well, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, having me. Thanks for letting me talk about my new book. Well, I am uh, really interested in in hearing more about this uh, digital theology. Um, So in order to kind of introduce the whole project itself before we get into the details, um, I think a good thing to do might be to tell us a bit about, you know, how the book came to be, your interest in it, and, you know, in general, what motivates digital theology? Uh, What motivates digital theology is a kind of frustration with a lot of contemporary philosophy of religion. And uh, most of that is centered on a lot of really old categories, which I think are just not defensible. And they don't need to be defended. So a lot of it is centered on, you know, Cartesian dualism, sort of substance dualism, or on concepts of the divine, uh, or and related concepts, the holy, the sacred, and so forth, that just aren't really defensible anymore. Uh, you know, Abrahamic traditions and things like that. And so I, I think that computer science and information sciences and other formal sciences provide us now with lots of new conceptual tools that uh, enable us to develop theologies that are defensible and uh, you know, naturalistically, scientifically defensible and that are uh, satisfying and you know, can do a lot of the things that older uh, theologies tried to do. So you, this is something you've been working on for a while, I take it. So this is a, a culmination of various papers or things that you've done, or it builds on that in any case, right? It builds on uh, – it, it doesn't repeat any of my older work, but it does build on you know a long series of articles that I've published on um, 
you know, gods and life after death and things like that. So yeah, it's, it's the culmination of a long project like that. Okay. So you begin with the idea of a, what you call a digital ghost. Um, that's a core concept in, in this digital theology. So, uh, tell us about that. Well, digital ghosts, you know, are one, um, way to kind of reclaim some old notions. We're, we're obviously leaving all kinds of data about ourselves behind on the web, on Facebook, uh, in email, on our computers, all these, all these things, which from which a lot of our personality can be reconstructed, our preferences and desires and psychology. But why not take it to the limit? I mean, conceptually, uh, everything I do uh, is uh, recordable and archivable and compilable into a database. And uh, taking a kind of digital perspective on the self, on human beings, uh, I'm a finite system, and my entire life uh, is a finite uh, structure of data. And that finite structure, that structure of data, it's a, a perfect biography uh, which you know can be taken to the limit, can be taken down into the uh, details of my cellular computations, and that's a digital ghost. That's you know your uh, perfect digital vapor trail, your uh, digital image of your entire life. So that includes, uh, as you said, the computations of each of your cells. So it's so it's a full track, not just of what supposedly goes on in your mind, I take it, but also everything that goes on in your body? Well, yeah, except I don't really draw that distinction. Okay. You know, I have a, I have a weird problem that, you know, people like Sam Harris say, oh, focus on your consciousness, focus on yourself. And I, I just look at my body. So uh, I don't draw that distinction. I think I think mentality mind is a is a computation that goes on in the body and, and every cell at the molecular level. Okay. Um, so w- well, one of the questions I had about that the idea that you know everything about you uh, is recoverable is is uh, can be recorded and so forth. Um, Obviously, now nowadays we have a conception of embodiment and the embodied mind, and part of that, uh, you know, in the extreme, of course, which not everybody holds, but in a in a in a very clear sort of version of that, from you know Andy Clark and and David Chalmers, is this idea of the extended mind, where uh, you know parts of your what we would consider to be outside of us are is actually you know part of the cognitive system um so the question is um how does all of that get replicated as my file uh without sort of having just one huge file of everybody that isn't distinguished among different people that's a, that's a good question i think the uh you know that sort of extended mind kind of hypothesis is uh is correct in in one way but it gets taken too far in another uh extending you know one's one's agency outwards through the use of tools or involvements in those kinds of uh relationships where we uh you know sort of our intentionality spills out of the body somehow that's fine uh i i wouldn't say that that's part of my either my body or my mind um those are extensions 
And, and this, this is just one way of drawing a kind of boundary, uh, because it's not just going to be your, uh, mind file or body file that exists, right? Digital ghosts come together. We are all, we are all networked to each other through all kinds of ways. You don't have any singular, uh, human being. But I would just say that your to, to make uh, make it clear your body file, your digital ghost is uh, ultimately right in the in the ideal limit is the record of what's going on, the computations that are going on in the cells of your body. I don't think that refutes or conflicts with the idea of an extended mind. It's just a way of saying, okay, we have uh, Carrie's uh, digital ghost and we have Eric's digital ghost, and and each one of those is going to be. They're kind of like Leibnizian monads almost, but each one is going to contain a record of, right, this conversation. So the relationships are, are implied. Um, that's, I guess, how I would answer that question. Okay. Um, well, then, uh, so you introduced this idea, a uh, general idea of a digital ghost. You compare it with, um, you know, Facebook records that are now being, you know, kept and and so forth. Um and you, uh, you raise basically four core questions at the start that you then kind of, un, uh, go through, uh, in the rest of the book. What about the idea, the, the metaphysical question of the persistence through time of an individual? Um, the question of my relation to my body, um, you know, who am I? Uh, you know, am I identical to my body, like Olson's view or, Am I somehow a, a soul that's separate and, and the dualism that you, you said you, you oppose? Um, the third question was whether replication as a digital ghost um, really does preserve life after death, which is sort of a, a new question that this sort of uh, theological position uh, raises. Um, and then, again, another new kind of question, um, whether my ghost... Um, if I live in a world, if, if my digital ghost lives in a world um, that's built from its own stored data, um, whether this suffices for, for life after death. Um, now, I, I, I want to, rather than sort of go through all four of these, I think I, I want to, I'd like to start with the, the second one. Um, I, you, so as far as the persistence question, you, you adopt a kind of, uh, four dimensionalism or which extrantism, right. right? Um, and you, uh, you relate us at one point, you, you say we're analogous to, um, the gliders in a game of life, um, which I thought was kind of an interesting analogy because it's very, it's actually very controversial whether there are gliders, right? As opposed to simply an algorithm for moving to the next stage in the game and, and those things that you see moving across the screen are just sort of epiphenomena. They're not, they're, they're not real. We're not committed to their existence. Uh, I mean, that's, that's a debate, but the analogy brought up that question for me, um, as far as, uh, basically, you know, who am I? Who is this I that, sur- that allegedly sort of survives after sure. some sort of death. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, at every moment you are identical to your body and, uh, okay. There's interesting questions about exactly defining the body. I mean, um, does it include all the bacterial cells in your gut and, and things like that? Those are some interesting questions. Um, and the persistence idea is, yeah, it's four dimensional. 
and you have uh, you know counterparts at uh, all the past and future times at which uh, your body's counterparts exist, right? So you're a four-dimensional thing composed of uh, three-dimensional bodies. At every moment, the person, you, is just identical with one of those bodies. And you say, well, I was this or I will be that. And um, I just use uh, temporal counterpart theory, right, from uh, people like Sider and Lewis mm-hmm. to, to analyze that, that stuff those kinds of statements. And, and that's pretty conventional. I mean, it right. might be wrong, but it's, it's a pretty conventional approach to temporal logic. Right. Um, so yeah, you're identical with your body. You know, your body is this network of cells, which are all tiny little cellular computers. The game of life thing is, um, yeah, it's interesting in terms of persistence. And you brought up the worry, uh, which is sort of a reasonable worry. It's kind of interesting. You say like, well, okay, are gliders, you know, real things or are they just supervening somehow or epiphenomenal on some deeper computation? And uh, that's, that's, that's kind of neat because I'm going to say, yeah, you, your body is like, however you answer that question, your body is like that too. You're, you're just something, you're a software object that's supervening on a hardware computation, now, of course, I say those comp- hardware computations, and this, you know, we take from kind of the simulation hypothesis, right? The, the view that, oh, you know, our universe is epiphenomenal on some um, hardware ground of its physicality. It's being computed. Mm-hmm. Everything is uh, being computed into existence. And so, yeah, you are, a, you are a software process that's, you know, supervening on or epiphenomenal on uh, some underlying hardware process, which I refer to as a, you know, as a digital god. Well, um, what is the hardware-software distinction then on, on your view? That's a really good question. Um, I don't know that I have a really good answer to that question, um, you know, because I don't fully understand and I'm not sure anybody fully understands, for instance, what's the difference between, say, supervenience and emergence. And some people want to talk about there's a big difference there. Others say, well, there's not really much difference or any difference. Uh, I use the analogy of gliders in the game of life because I think that's a pretty clear analogy. And uh, mostly in the book, I say, look, this is this is an analogy and we know there are things like this and we're like that, too. Uh, I think I would have to wait for for a lot of other people to come up with clearer ideas about um, those kinds of issues of epiphenomena or supervenience or emergence. Okay. Um, so then what is uh, what is death on your view? Uh, death is just the uh, termination of a computation. Okay. That's it. Uh, okay. But, um, obvi- but so some of the computations, the ones that you label software, don't end and other computations do end, and that's what distinguishes life from death? Well, that's okay. That's a really good question. And I think one of the uh, points of the book is right i'm trying to use you know formal sciences mathematics computer science information science to redefine and analyze you know concepts that i think are really in a backwater so a lot of theological concepts a lot of um you know soteriological ideas about life after death are defined in these really primitive ways that people just don't do anywhere else in philosophy other other areas of philosophy have made enormous progress 
Mm-hmm. I'm a believer in philosophical progress, except these areas are still stuck to these old sort of authoritative uh, religions from the past. So what's death? So somebody says, well, okay, your body dies or your soul or something. Well, I take, I, I look at life computationally. And so I look at death computationally and okay. So computations, there are, for instance, Turing computations that run for infinitely long periods of time, but those infinities, right. Are surpassed by greater infinities. If I have a Turing computation that runs for Aleph not stages, well, there are ordinal numbers greater than, and you know, cardinal numbers greater than LF naught. So any, a computation ends, it could be infinitely long, but it ends because there's an ordinal number, which is greater than the number of steps in that computation. So death is, uh, you know, saying that a computation is surpassed by some greater computation. A computation dies when it halts. Some computations run infinitely long before they halt, but they still halt, meaning that there is a, on the ordinal number line, which goes as far out into the transfinite as is consistently definable, mm-hmm. right? Any computation, any ordinal sequence is going to be surpassed. And so ultimately, everything dies. That's death. Uh- Okay. Um, so even life after death is, so life after death is just some of, some of the computations or, uh, I guess some of the, the programs or algorithms, uh, just have more steps to them. Is that the idea? The body ones, the ones associated, the ones we call body, uh, conventionally, uh, just have, uh, have fairly, very short, you know, very finite, um, very finite number of steps, whereas the ones that we have traditionally in these old, you know, uh, in old philosophical or religious traditions, those are just computations that just have have more steps. Is that is that bas- is that the basic idea? Yeah, the idea is an idea of kind of uh, perpetually upgrading your computation, perpetually upgrading your body, perpetually. Uh, improving and increasing and self-surpassing. There's no way one of the lessons I take from modern mathematics, and it's interesting, Charles Hartshorn took the same lesson, right, is there aren't any such things as maximums. You know, anything you say is maximal is going to be surpassed by something that's bigger, that's greater, that's, uh, you know, longer in time, that's more intense in its activity, that can, uh, you know, outcompute whatever you were doing before, outlive whatever you were doing before. So yeah, our bodies right now are uh, finite, and they last for a finite period of time. They're finitely complex. But your body can be surpassed by a greater version of your body, just like a computer can be upgraded. And that version, suppose somebody says that version lasts forever. Well, what does forever mean? And if forever just means, you know, it performs uh, infinitely many steps or computations or lasts for infinitely many moments of time, you got to ask, well, how big is that infinity? And if that, however big that infinity is, it can just be compressed, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, if you say like my body, my next body, after I die, I will have a body that uh, endures for, you know, perders for uh, Aleph not stages, well, there's a bigger infinity, LF1. 
So relative to that infinity, your allegedly eternally or foreverly existing body is going to have a limit. It comes to an end relative to that larger infinity. So you're going to have another body uh, after that. I mean, it's it's much like, uh, let's say, John Hicks theory of resurrection, where you have uh, an ed- a truly endless, mathematically endless sequence of lives. Mm-hmm. Right. Or, you know, some people have said to me that it's like a kind of Buddhist uh, rebirth theory um, where, yeah, you're you're reborn over and over again in better bodies, bodies that are more complex, that are computationally more complex and that whose computations, therefore, uh, persist for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. But any period of time, any number of computational steps is bounded above by some greater cardinal number. Okay, so let me let me circle back a little bit to the question about about you know who am I because that's supposedly I mean that's the one of the core issues in in life after death is is what it is or who it is that that does the surviving. So there's there are a def- number of different possibilities here, um, and I'm a, I'm not saying you endorse these. These are just the the candidates, let's put it sure. that way. Um, so there's, you know, what, again, conventionally thought of as a human body, a mater- which is conventionally thought of as a material thing. Uh, there's the human brain, which is, again, part of the body, so also conventionally material. Uh, there is, uh, on your read, there's a digital program uh, that is run on a human body. Um, there is a soul which you distinguish from uh, a mind, um, and then presumably there is a mind. Lots um, of stuff. Yeah, that's a lot of stuff, and I'm I'm kind of and at different times I wasn't sure what exactly I was. Um, you know what? Yeah. So let me just let me just which what's your choice right among all those things? I mean, I thought sort of the soul maybe. But I wasn't sure about the distinction between soul and mind and why I should identify me with the soul rather than the mind. Um, so there's a, a, a bunch of different questions that are all related to the which one of those is me question. Right. Uh, so uh, at any moment of time, you are your body and that's it. And your body contains the mind which is all the computations going on and all the cells in your body uh, down to at the molecular level. And not all the things in your body are performing computations, right? Some of the dead parts of your body, in that sense, aren't performing uh, carry computations. So uh, your mind is, is basically a, a part, a proper part of your body. But minds are material things on this view, right, as are bodies. And, of course, you know, material things, physical things are computations that are running in a much deeper uh, computational sense. But we can, we can, you know, keep the old ontology. Your body is a material thing. There's no, you know, refutation of physics here or anything. Um, so your body is a material thing. And a proper material part of your body is your mind. It's the part of your body that performs computations. Again, all the way down to uh, – because I think molecules are the things that are carrying information – um, within the body and performing the uh, relevant uh, uh, information theoretic transformations. So what's your soul? So you are a body and you have a soul. 
And this, my position on this is, goes back to Aristotle. The soul is the form of the body. But I think of the form of the body computationally. The soul is your body program. It's a program which is an invariant pattern, right, in all your bodily transformations and therefore all your mental transformations. So those would be the distinctions, right? Your, your body is, right, this material structure of all your cells. Your mind is a substructure of the body. The program is um, a platonic form, basically. Um, and you talk about whether it's a kind of, you know, in-ray universal or something like that. That's a little, a little more technical than we need uh, to be right now, I think. But um, the soul is the form of the body. And a lot of writers, a lot of recent writers, I'm not the uh, first digitalist by far, Right. Lots of uh, recent writers, uh, Hans Moravec, Ray Kurzweil, uh, people like Frank Tipler or Ed Fredkin, uh, and a lot of people uh, in um, at for, you know, Fred Adams. People have written similar things, right, trying to to functionalism. Right. People have tried to resurrect this idea of um, a soul as being a computational pattern or program. So that, that would be that would be it. That help? Uh, yeah, although, um, so the soul, it's, I mean, you do say it's a Platonistic view of form. I mean, you mentioned Aristotle, but, you know, obviously Aristotle and Plato are not in agreement on, on that. Um, but, uh, the, okay, so the, there, the whole body is computation, a sub, a subset of those computations are the mental, or is the mind? Yeah, a part, a proper part. I don't. Okay. Okay. Um, well, just um, I suppose the proper parthood. Uh, I mean, there are some people like Catherine Kozlicki who think that um, you know the earth, the 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 form is as is actually a proper part. Um, uh, and that has been a puzzling view for for some people, at least. Um, so maybe my confusion is a little bit between understanding the software hardware relation as a proper part relation. Oh, I don't know. I don't think of the software hardware relation as a proper part relation. That's just a platonic. That's just play. You know, my view of software hardware in that sense is just more platonic. I mean, I got to be a little, a little bit careful there, right? I mean, software objects supervene on hardware objects, but those are just ways of stacking up computations, all of which have forms. And I don't know that we need to get, I don't know that there's too much of a need to get into, into too much, you know, ornate metaphysics here. It's the view is ultimately kind of a platonic view. Okay. There are material things that it's hylomorphic. There's material things that instantiate forms um, I bring up Aristotle mainly just as a motivation. I mean, Aristotle, you know, started this view of the soul and others have taken Aristotle and said, yeah, but the form has to be platonic really. And so one can do that. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, my view of, of, a, of a person is a body that has a soul and it's hylomorphic. The body's a material thing. The soul is a, is a mathematical form. Um, in a platonic sense, and bodies instantiate souls. Okay. Um, so what makes, I mean, not many people think of Plato as naturalistic, at least as far as 
his views of the forms or souls are concerned. So um, you do say, you know, as you as you just did, that this is a naturalistic view, um, and that digitalism affirms uh, physicalism. And you know, in one sense, you're just saying you are your body, but your body, of course, is just these, you know, computations. So your soul and your mind are just our computations too. Um, so how, how does that, uh, how does that mesh with, with the usual way of thinking about Platonism and naturalism? Yeah, the naturalism is, so that's a good question. I mean, I don't think I'm alone in saying that maybe I'm lonely, but, uh, (laughs) it's saying that, uh, yeah, saying that, um, I mean, we have, you know, mathematical objects are used in a scientific ontology. Yeah. And so I don't, I don't see any problem with saying that mathematical structures are, I mean, very Quinean here, right? It's saying, look, mathematical structures are part of, of the uh, natural world. In other words, my naturalism is not physicalism. I don't really even see that to be very defensible. Um, math is, is used in science. I use, I appeal to the indispensability argument. I say, look, uh, there are these mathematical structures and my soul is one of them, right? And uh, ultimately, since my view of the material world is that it's computational, right? It's ultimately information processing. You know, math gets worked into that at a very deep level, right? And so, uh, I don't know, does that answer any of it? Uh, yeah, um, I, I guess in, in science... Um uh, I mean, Platonists in mathematics are typically people who say that um, numbers are abstract objects. Yeah, Contra- sure. contrasting that, of course, with with physical objects, and and you know, there's a trend, uh, you know, strong, you know, pushback, Quinean uh, motivated, you know, or or inspired um, pushback, um, also in philosophy, mathematics, and philosophy of science. Um, that uh, no, we should you know if if numbers are Platonistic, then we don't need numbers in science or something along those lines. So, yeah, there's nominalists. Yeah, right? I mean, I'm not a nominalist. Okay, I'm, I'm a Platonist, and I'll say like, yeah, your soul. That's that's very nice. Your soul is an abstract object, right? Your mind is not. Your mind is a concrete object. It's a part, a proper part of your body, which is also a concrete object. So I'm gonna I'm gonna appeal to a lot of other people there. I'm not trying to defend, you know, it's not my point to defend Platonism, right, or its naturalness. I mean, I take, you know, like I say, Quine and and you know, on some days Lewis and all those classical folks to be defending a kind of, uh, or you know, Colavan has has got that wonderful book on uh, the indispensability argument, and so uh, you know, I take their work. And I, I fall into play. If Platonism is false, I've got problems. Yeah. Right. I mean, I've got, I mean, my view is gone because I rely on, you know, the, the metaphysics of abstract objects to get basically life after death means your form, right? Your soul, your form, your is reinstantiated. Uh-huh. You know, your program gets run again on some sort of superior computational substrate. Right. In another universe or wherever, uh, as a counterpart, let's say in another universe, your life, right? Suppose we say your life is analogous to a, uh, you know, a finite state machine, mm-hmm. right? History of a finite state machine. I say, well, 
you know, you've got your program. Yeah. And after you die, that program can run again on some uh, more stable uh, machine and run further and longer. And there are upgrades to your program. Your program, in fact, defines its own improvements and surpassed version, you know, superior versions of itself. Mm-hmm. And those two can be run. Uh, you have counterparts through a branching system of possible worlds, which run your program, your soul. So your soul has many lives across many worlds. If, if Platonism ends up to be false, then, then my view just turns to dust, right? Okay. Well, that's, that's nicely kind of upfront of you. Many people will squirm on, on those issues. Um, but let me, let me just ask, ask now, um, uh, you know, if, if part of, if, if I'm, if the computations that are my cells now, um, uh, are part of the, you know, sort of total record of me, um, but then in, you know, after some conventional thing we call death, uh, I get my program is instantiated as you put on a different, some sort of different hardware substrate, then um, that can't be me. Okay. Granted. There you go. End of story. So um, so we're just saying that there's, um, uh, you, I don't think you talk about Parfit here um, in your book. Yeah, uh, I do. Oh, okay. I guess I missed that. It. Um, so there's no really identity here that's just um, some sort of uh, continuity of some sort. That's right. I mean, so so identities, right, are, are logical statements and identity claims and everything else is counterpart theory. Okay. So, yeah, your future selves, in fact, even in your own life, are counterparts. Yeah. I'm not going to be me in five minutes or, or five microseconds. Right. So I don't, I mean, and I don't, it, I mean, you, you raised a crucial question, right? So people say all the time, well, it's not me. Yeah. And Parfit has this neat response to that, right? Which is to say, well, that's not, I mean, first of all, he says, well, that's not what matters, right? right. But there's this, and he, he invokes, you know, kind of Buddhist uh, sort of orientation to the self, right? The self is an illusion of a certain kind. And, you know, we've got Hume and Nietzsche talk about that. And I agree, Right, the view of that there is an enduring self, uh, that's, I think, illusory. And so I, there's a strong um, Buddhist uh, component in the book, which has led some people to say that, uh, based on some articles that I, that I published, that my view is kind of a, you know, a computational Buddhism or something. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't know that I would say that. I mean, the fact, because, you know, Hume and, and Nietzsche and even, even Plato, you know, would say that kind of thing about, about selves. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't, I like the Buddhist moment of it, but I want to say something even stronger as I've, you know, talked with people about this is, um, I don't want to be me, right? I don't want to be me. I have desire because me, I'm stinky. I have allergies. I have swollen sinuses. I've got, you know, TMI. <laughs> TMI. Yeah, I've got, I, you know, I've got so many problems. I want, if I want life after death, right, and that's going to be a kind of upgrading or superior version of what I am now, uh-huh. it's not going to be me. 
Uh-huh. And I don't desire to be me. I have desires. All my desires are desires to be something else. Well, something related, right? Related. The best of you. Part. Yeah. That's right. Um, and I, I like that kind of, you know, Lewisian analysis of desire, which is like, well, you know, desires are like satisfied by counterparts who aren't you. I mean, I wouldn't desire, I desire what I don't have mm-hmm. and I desire who ought to be who I am not. And so I don't, that I think is a legacy. I think it's, it's a Christian legacy um, that comes to us from a lot of issues about punishment and retribution that are associated with life after death. Absolutely. Um, and maybe, you know, reward too. Um, and so, you know, you are perpetually attached to this substance, which carries the burden of its past and which will be judged and rewarded or condemned. And that is not at all the, the soteriological model uh, in the book, right? It's more a model of a, you have a sequence of lives, in fact, a branching tree of lives, an endlessly ramified tree of lives, which are uh, unfolding all your positive potentialities. Why only the positive ones? Because I don't like negativity. Well, that's not a good answer, and you know it. Ah! Why only the positive ones? Um, underneath, I think that the logic which tries to justify the view, right? And this goes back to a kind of uh, platonic view, right? The form of the good as being the author of all things. Now, I don't, I don't believe that. But, or Plotinus, right? The one, the good, um, as uh, emanating or manifesting all that is. And again, those are, those are sort of just old-fashioned views. Um, but it comes down to a view more recently called axiarchism, in which one tries to argue that value has, plays an essential role. Why does anything exist rather than, you know, no things at all, no concrete things at all? Right. And people like Rescher, Nicholas Rescher, mm-hmm. um, and John Leslie have argued that value plays, uh, and, and Parfit as well. Yeah, right. Have argued that value plays an essential role in selecting what concretely, from the plenitude of forms, selecting what concretely gets uh, exists or instantiated and what does not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those kinds of axiarchic arguments are what justify, yeah, the um, the positivity. I don't want to, I don't want that to sound Pollyannish because, uh, you know, there'd be an obvious refutation from the problem of evil. Um, so I tie in the book, I try to give an analysis of value, uh, intrinsic value, right? And I try to give a computational analysis of intrinsic value in terms of the concept from, um, a number of, uh, mathematicians and computer scientists, the concept of logical depth. Um, could you go also- into that? Yeah. Yeah, it's also a concept of complexity. Uh-huh. And so as systems are, uh, you know, you can also ask, why are there any complex things rather than just simple things? Right. And when you start to look for explanations, you get evolutionary explanations, uh, general explanations about uh, the kinds of mechanisms that increase complexity, that accumulate complexity. Right. Dennett has written about uh, evolution in an algorithmic sense. Um, and he generalizes it beyond just, you know, Darwinian natural selection on earth. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the motivation for why only the positive and the positive, of course, at every stage involves lots of conflict between, you know, different things. 
And those conflicts, once they appear, will have to be worked out later. So it's certainly not that there's no evil. There's plenty of evil, especially you get multiplicity, you get strivings, you get competitions, mm-hmm. you have winners and losers. And, you know, conflicts have to be worked out by uh, future counterparts, basically. So could you, uh, you know, I'd like to pursue this this line a bit more about um, about progression. Um, so there's there's a number of different processes that go on in here. So, um, you know, you're starting out as whatever computations are running now. Some of these continue or they continue or at least better aspects of them continue. Um, they're uploaded. Uh, there's promotion. Um, these are some of the these are some of the steps or stages. I'm not sure what you how you conceive of them um, towards sort of this again another concept of of resurrection and as we just mentioned this concept of of progression um, and all of those are somehow also uh, consistent with. Uh, a concept of hard determ at least as I understood it, hard determinism. Sure. Um, so could you could you say a bit more about that that whole progression? First of all, you know the yeah. you know up the promotion, the resurrection, the progression, and why you know you you just gave an answer as to you know why it's you know positive, but you know in a sense there's still the there's still the answer of uh, um, you know, sort of, how did it get set in that direction? You know, to begin with, and, and why bother? <laughs> why bother? Well, the um, yeah, you raised, you talked about a lot of different things that are that are in the book, right? One of the uh, the book has a has a four part structure essentially with respect to these theories, right? And it's motivational, it's rhetorical, right? So we start out with okay, your digital ghost and your Facebook and all the data you're leaving behind on Facebook. And that's intended to motivate the idea of kind of a perfect digital biography. And then the idea of, okay, you know, your body is a computer running a soul program and things like that. And then I turn to uploading to, you know, to illustrate the concepts of life after death that might be associated with that computational um, theory of the self, right? I don't advocate uploading. Uploading would be just if uploading were possible. I don't know that it is. I don't really care. Um, but it's intended to illustrate, right, things that people have said and to raise, raise, and then I try to solve philosophical problems about persistence and reinstantiating the self and things like that. Similar things with, with you know, simulation, with Bostrom's uh, simulation argument and with the concept of promotion, right? Bostrom says that, uh, and this goes back to Hans Moravec, and Ed Fredkin, who have said that, well, you know, if you are living in a simulation, then your simulators might promote you to their level, mm. right? Which raises, and then you could have an infinite sequence of promotions, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that those are used, those are kind of rhetorical devices used that have been in the literature that are used to, for me to raise questions and answer the questions to motivate my own theory, which is the progressivist theory, Okay. Like you say, right, which is that you have, right, an endlessly ramified tree of lives. You know, that's really the big, you know, carry in the big sense, right? Mm-hmm. But your present life is just a very small substructure. Mm-hmm. And that view of, of life after death, right, is ultimately a, 
a kind of naturalized version of John Hicks' resurrection theory, uh, which he developed in his book, Death and Eternal Life. Um, and, you know, he, he obviously sort of maybe says there's a role for God in it, but he also describes it as a consequence of purely natural laws. Mm-hmm. Now, so he's a little, okay, he's, he's playing both sides of the street and fine. I don't need to worry about that. But the logical structure of it, once it's fully developed, is to say, okay, look, you know, we, we've had people talking about, you know, Facebook and archiving all your life information and people talking about uploading, people talking about promotion into simulated realities. And that can all go into a, a naturalization of somebody like John Hicks' resurrection theory. It can be done without a God. There's no personal omni-God in, in this book or in this theory. Uh, in that sense, it's atheistic. Of course, in another sense, it's radically polytheistic since, you know, all these universe running computers are, are little gods, little G gods. Mm-hmm. And but um, I'm not sure I answered your question. Well, it was it, there were a number of different ways that you could have. So let's assume you did. OK, um, well, uh, you know, so you raised a couple of. I mean, I'm, I'm sort of interested in the question of value, and also you just raised the issue of, of gods, you know, with a little g. Um, so let me just pursue the value question before turning to the gods question, because you do talk about, you know, these um, virtuous engineers and so forth. Um, but let's just put that aside for a moment. And... Um, where, where does this value, where do the values come from? Um, uh, so, okay, so from a computational point of view, purely computational, what makes a code or a program, you know, good um, is, for example, something like being very efficient or, or being very elegant in some sense of elegance. I mean, these, these terms, uh, you know, these are aesthetic terms applied to, you know, mathematical uh, proofs and so forth, and um, and so it's it would seem that if if everything is computation, then a kind of value that is built in to the theology uh, would be one of you know we just all we just want to be. I mean, the only sort of real intrinsic value is you know if it more efficient coding, more um, elegant uh, programming. Right? Um, is no. that, how, how do you get more value than just that? Well, there's a, there's, right. I mean, that's a really good question. Um, <laughs> so the analysis of value, yeah, really is, is, uh, is crucial in, in the book for, you know, behind the scenes um, to motivate a lot of these things. So value, right? I look at uh, different concepts of intrinsic value. Mm-hmm. That people have discussed a lot of a lot of philosophers, um, Dworkin, Dennett, you know Leibniz, um, and I, I look at their concepts. You know, Leibniz, of course, talked about, for instance, perfection, and mm-hmm. she said, "Is you know quantity of essence," and he says, "Well, it's a it's a you know combination of order and variety, right? Things like that." Mm-hmm. So, so none of this is uh, is about efficiency. That would just be about a value relative to something about time or something, which could be a value. But the deeper notion of intrinsic value, right? And then Dworkin and Dennett talk about value as a kind of historically accumulated um, organization or sophistication in various ways. And they, they, you know, there's about five or six um, 
established authors who have discussed a kind of analysis of intrinsic value. And I take their analyses and I, lo- I looked at them in, in the book and I compared them with computational concepts and came up again with this concept. Well, I didn't come up with the concept, but there is a concept called logical depth, which is a way of measuring complexity. It's a way of measuring the complexity of mathematical structures. Mm-hmm. And, and it's been applied in a real world context to analyze the complexity of ecosystems, of species, of uh, images, uh, among other things. And so what's interesting is Bennett's concept of logical depth matches very closely with the concept of intrinsic value that's found in a wide range uh, of authors. And um, so value is a kind of complexity, right? And, and again, this kind of complexity has to be, is defined very precisely using the concept of logical depth, but it's going to unfold. And it's very close then to these concepts like, you know, that Leibniz talks about greater order and greater variety together. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, things that, uh, you know, Dennett talks about when Dennett talks about intrinsic value um, in Darwin's Dangerous Idea, for instance, and in a number of sort of striking things he's written about the sacred. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, you know, if in, a, if, if in an afterlife, you know, you, you don't want to have allergies, is that somehow uh, becoming more complex or more deep? Yes. I hope. <laughs> okay. Okay. It better. Okay. Um but that doesn't seem to like follow. I mean, if somebody wanted to uh I don't know. I mean, uh Yeah, if, some, if somebody was wanted to be taller or shorter than they are, it's it's you know, one of those would have to be more complex. And one would have to be less complex, and they can't both be more complex. Well, but let's be uh, let's be a little cautious, right? About two things, right? So one is the the uh, spelling out, uh, applying this notion of, of logical depth and intrinsic value to the computations that are human lives. Yeah. Right. So, and it's not just about just about what you want, obviously, because a lot of people want lots of things that are not good um, in any sense. And so, uh, the book does try to spell out different ways that this applies. So, for instance, I take it that my aller- that my allergies are the result of a kind of defective coding mm-hmm. uh, in my DNA. And why say it's defective? Well, because uh, we can compare it with other kinds of codes. We can see that it's trying to do something that it's not doing well. Um, things like that. Now, that, this does have to be spelled out, and you, know, and you get into the details, right? So it's not just about, oh, I want to be taller or I want to be shorter. But there are all kinds of things uh, that when you look at the larger structure, let's say, of uh, someone's genetic code, Mm-hmm. And I try to use a lot of examples in the book like this. So let's say, you know, cystic fibrosis, right? There are good reasons to say that that's a coding error. Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of the genetic code implies that, that uh, you know, gene relative to the proteins in the lungs and so forth um, is not performing its proper function. Mm-hmm. And now, of course, we've got a lot of questions, right? But um, 
there are there are clear reasons that we think some things are biologically or physiologically um, more valuable than others, and a lot of that goes with notions of flourishing, right? Notions of being able to actualize possibilities or potentialities, um, and and a lot you know I'm, I rely on a lot of older authors who have written more and better about value and intrinsic value and things like that than I have. Okay. Right. So I'm relying on, on their analyses and trying to interpret it computationally. But there may be many ways to answer your second question about maybe I want to be short, maybe I want to be tall, and it has to be one or the other. No, it doesn't. Because yeah. surely, surely Carrie Figder has many potentials, or the Carrie Figder program, to be careful, right? Your soul mm. has, has, that's the problem. Your soul has a lot of potentials that you, your present life, can't realize. Because there's just one of you. Mm. And so for all I know, you could also be a wonderful politician, but you chose to be a philosopher. And for all I know, you could be, I don't know what else, a wonderful uh, swimmer. Maybe you are. But, you know, a professional athlete or something. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can't do all three of those things with the one. And those potentials are encoded within your soul. But you can't do them with one life. So you have future counterparts and you have more than one future counterpart, right? One of them is, you know, the Carrie Figder politician. One is the Carrie Figder uh, professional athlete. One is, you know, another Carrie Figder philosopher. Fine. Mm -hmm. Um, There has to be multiplicity. There has to be kind of a branching tree of counterparts to work out all your positive potentials. Okay. Um, let me, uh, I want to get back to the God's question because, sure. you know, this is a theology and, and, um, although you did mention it's, there's atheistic aspects to it, or at least it, maybe it is atheistic. I mean, that's one of the questions, but there's certainly, you do talk about, um, uh, local gods and uh engineers with a capital e and that they're virtuous so they're with virtuous with a capital v um so you could could you just say a little bit about the role what these what these gods and engineers are and what their role is in the in the theology as a whole well start with the uh start with the engineers which is actually just mo- in in the chapter on uh, promotion and simulation that's just that's just motivation Oh, okay. That's, that's just looking at Bostrom's, you know, simulation argument says that there are, you know, whoever is, if, if we're being simulated in the way Bostrom says, then, you know, our universe was built by some engineers, right? And they would be like gods to us. So, so those, those cavalry engineers don't play any role in the theory. Okay. Now, they, they might later in a strange way. So the, the little, the little G gods, right? The local gods, right? It's a sort of Spinozistic, uh, conception here where if, if our universe is running on a computer, on a computational substrate, on a machine of some kind that isn't running on any deeper machine, those kinds of machines, those kinds of computers uh, have a seity. They're, uh, the deepest concrete things on which other concrete things supervene. Um, and I, you know, I argue that those things should be called gods. They uh, design and create universes. They uh, are continuous creators of universes in the same way that a computer is continuous, like the game of life, right? The computer that's running it is producing or manifesting all these gliders and things like that. 
So, um, you know, the gods are these computational cores of universes. There's no biggest God and there's no, certainly no Christian or Abrahamic God. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the book is atheistic in that sense, right? You can go back a little bit. There's, and I refer, for instance, in the book to Hume, right? And Hume gives a lot of, uh, you know, Hume presents a lot of these kinds of ideas as just foils against, you know, a traditional uh, Christian or theistic kind of arguments. They say, well, you know, these, a lot of these ideas are not bad ideas, right? That you have a series of, of an evolutionary series of world makers that get better and better in the art of world making, mm-hmm. right? Or uh, the kinds of actually old, old, you know, old Greek and Roman pagan ideas that Hume is actually taking up from Cicero uh, in, in his work. And so, um, there are little gods, little G gods, little, little God, you know, so earlier gods, uh, beget, uh, later gods that are bigger and better gods. Mm-hmm. So and this recursive yeah. self-improvement. So, uh, just, just to be clear, there's no, uh, do, do we progress to, to be local gods? Oh yeah. Okay. 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 So they're just, uh, it's just a different stage of spooling out their programs. That's all. Right. So there's a nice, there are nice, and maybe I'm just obsessed, you know, Platonist obsessed with, you know, formal stuff. I mean, because there's a computer scientist, Jürgen Schmidhuber, who's written about this kind of thing. And, um, Paul Davies has, uh, two, um, Right, physicist who says that look, they, and they argue like this, right? If computations become greater and greater, in, in the sense of becoming more and more complex, they're going to be able to simulate less complex computations. Mm-hmm. And this leads to something that's you know almost like a theorem, right? That if you were to have a plenum of increasingly complex computations, which resembles something like the iterative hierarchy of sets. Right. So you have a small, you know, simpler computations begetting more complex computations, right? Recursive self-improvement. So Dave Chalmers has written about that in the context of the singularity, right? You get, and, and he's certainly not the first, right? I mean, more of that and Kurzweil were, uh, already there, uh, before him. But you have recursive self-improvement. You have small computers producing, uh, greater computers. And as things get more and more complex in this computational hierarchy, you eventually are going to get computers that are simulating lower parts of the computational hierarchy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you're going to have, you know, future counterparts that are capable of simulating our universe or simulating the entire sequence of universes that ended with our universe. Right. And, and this becomes, you know, these become involved in reflection theorems. Uh, so, you know, to put it in a slogan, um, nature is so rich that every part of nature is simulated by some greater part of nature. Hmm. And so then that, that, you know, follows from a kind of, comp, you know, kind of pan computationalism. Yeah. So let me, let me ask where we're, we're close to running out of time and and this is kind sure. of a big question to to end with but um uh, i mentioned determinism and you talk about you know this is a deterministic uh i take it um oh, right. or or maybe uh, maybe you should explain the determinism and how it's compatible with the you know the sort of this idea of i guess the progress you know just means that well it's, it just happens 
whether you, you think of it as progress or not. Yeah, you don't, you don't, yeah, you don't have to believe in it for it to happen. <laughs> that would be the hope, right? Yeah. Um, the determinism and, um, you know, sort of issues about free will. I mean, I tend yeah. to probably have be kind of dumb about these things because I don't understand them. Uh, and I think, you know, okay, one thing happens after another and it develops according to computational rules. And people say like, well, do you have alternatives? Are there options? And I say, yeah, you have many future counterparts. And then some people say, well, that's not good enough. I want freedom. And I say, well, I'm a compatibilist about that. You know, as long as you're not being coerced in any way and you're, you're developing, you know, your essence or your programming is being developed right out of these laws, which ensure that all your positive potentials will be fulfilled. Mm -hmm. uh, that's certainly not coercive. So I try to wonder about ways that that determinism might cause problems. Yeah. And it's hard very hard for me to see what problems it causes because I don't understand sort of the libertarian accounts of free will. Uh -huh. And um, that may be a blindness on my part, but I don't, I don't think that there's anything problematic with a, a, a purely deterministic way of thinking of these things. And I would think, uh, you know, a lot of this I'll turn back to Leibniz, who, you know, just argues that determinism uh, is in a compatibilist way, right? It's compatible with analyses of all sorts of older uh, religious concepts, salvation, um, you know, even prayer or mm -hmm. something. And that freedom, you know, I'm suspicious of... Uh, you know, like Nietzsche says, well, men were men were made free, women too, right, in order to be found guilty. Mm. And I'm I'm suspicious that that's part of a Christian view of life after death, which the, the book completely rejects. There's no heaven, there's no hell, there's no God who's judging. This is, in that respect, more like a Buddhist theory of rebirth or an old Western, right? A Neoplatonic theory of rebirth. Mm. There's no uh, salvation either, right? What's that? There's no salvation. Well, salvation is your to you are saved in your total structure of counterparts. That no, is salvation. salvation in the in the sense of you've sinned and now we're gonna you're gonna be saved or damned. Right. There's, there's not no, that. Yeah. No judgment. Yeah. Right. There's no, there's no judgment. That's, that's no, ju that's a judgmental thing. I see. But to say that you're saved is to say, or redeemed even is to say that, right. The I mean, the idea there would have been that sin has presented you, prevented you from fulfilling your most authentic potentials in some way. And so you'll be relieved of this sin. So I don't, there's no sin in the book. There's no concept of that. Mm-hmm. There's a concept of, look, right now you're a simple version of Carrie. Mm -hmm. And there are more complex versions of Carrie that are available that have, um, will develop some of the potentials you can't develop. Those greater versions of Carrie have even greater potentials to be further developed. And that goes to infinity. And so that total structure is your salvation. Hmm. But this is, this is, again, this is more, and I worried a little bit about sort of saying the Buddhist thing, because a lot of these kinds of concepts are found in the old Neoplatonists. Mm -hmm. And so uh, before that whole structure became overwhelmed by, by Christian theism, 
right? And so there's a lot that you can turn back to the ancient world in the West and say, you know, I mean, you take Plato and the myth of error, right? And you've got, I mean, it's very primitive there, but you've got various kinds of notions of rebirth or reincarnation, multiple lives, a process of self-overcoming and self-surpassing from life to life, right? Um, so those are the concepts that are there, this endless progression of actualizing your potentials. Hmm. That's well, your salvation. That that's a that's a great note on which to end because we are now um, out of time. Okay. Uh, but last very quick quick question: um, Are you following this book up with with more um, more of the same, or are you switching to a different project? <clears throat> Excuse me. I, I want to try to uh, develop. Uh, I'm, I'm working on another book that I'm going to try to develop. Um, actually to answer some of the questions that you've already raised um, and also try to um, link it up more with the movement that's known as religious naturalism mm-hmm. and to try to people like Don Crosby and um, Ursula Goodenough and uh, 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 Jerome Stone, the, the movement that's known as religious naturalism, which tries to interpret a lot of old religious concepts naturalistically, mm-hmm. um, and actually, you know, gets rid of a lot of old concepts and replaces them with new ideas. And so, yes, there will be a future project here. Great. Okay. Well, um, I thank you for uh, for a great interview, and uh, wish you luck with. Uh, the future versions of you. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, thank you for uh, interviewing me and uh, asking all the questions. Okay, bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Eric Steinhardt, professor of philosophy at William Patterson University, about his new book, Your Digital Afterlives Computational Theories of Life After Death, which is just out from Palgrave Macmillan. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, and thank you for listening.